You're listening to The Tactical Kitchen. I'm Melody Behrens, certified chef and nutritional therapy practitioner. And I'm Steve Behrens, 21-year special operations veteran and certified personal trainer. Together, we are here to share our experience on the ketogenic lifestyle. Don't forget our disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only and should not be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We're not doctors, and we don't play them on the internet. Now, let's get ready to chew the fat. Mmm, bacon. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Tactical Kitchen Show. So today is episode 66. Yeah. Am I right? Totally. We always have to get the episode out immediately or we forget. Uh, and then we lose an episode somehow. I say the wrong number. But today is such an awesome podcast day for us because we have a special guest. And our special guest today is Dr. Jamie Seaman. And I want to let her kind of introduce herself and find out a little bit about her. If you don't know her, I'm pretty sure you live under a rock. <laughs> You're going to know her if you don't know her real name. You know her as Dr. Fit and Fabulous. And everybody just went, oh, oh now yeah. I know exactly who you're talking about. Right. I get that all the time with me. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jamie, how are you doing today? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. So we just like to start off with, with uh, kind of going over, you know, who you are. We always like to hear from, um, from people about what got their journey kickstarted because uh, being keto is, uh, you know, a ketogenic lifestyle or low carb is so controversial nowadays, but everybody gets to their, their why, their point in their life where, where they knew this is what they had to do and it worked for them. So how did you, how did you get there? Yeah, 100%. So a little bit about my background. I'm born and raised in Nebraska and grew up eating not all that great. I had a, a really hardworking mom, bless her heart. She provided so much for our family, but we didn't have, you know, a lot of like family sit down meals and I grew up eating pretty poorly, but I was an athlete. So I got away with eating that way because I was so active. And I went on to play college softball for the university of Nebraska. And while I was there, we had a nutritionist and I was training really hard and I was actually getting a bachelor of science in nutrition and exercise science. <laughs> so I definitely had a lot more, you know, knowledge, but I, I started to clean up my diet a little bit in college, just having the access to, you know, nutrition and, and the trainers and things like that. But I was your typical college kid. I mean, you know, I drank a few beers and ate a few pizzas and tacos and, and things like that. And then after I graduated college, I got accepted to medical school. My husband and I got married. And we uh, moved to Omaha, Nebraska, and we've been here ever since. But in medical school, um, I became much more stagnant, you know, sitting in the library for long hours and classes and just studying so much. And my activity level really diminished from what it had essentially been my entire life. So that became kind of a period in my life where I really started to calorie restrict. You know, it's funny, I had a nutrition degree, but all I understood was like, eat a certain number of calories and you'll maintain your weight. So I kind of went through this cycle of like restriction and calorie restriction and then binging. And I had some really, really poor relationships with food. I was very stressed from medical school and I would eat a lot and then restrict for periods of time. And it worked kind of, I mean, I definitely put on some weight in medical school, but then my third year of medical school, we decided to get pregnant. Oh. And pregnancy is definitely one of the biggest physiologic tests in a woman's lifetime. So I got pregnant with my first daughter and I failed my glucose testing during my pregnancy. 
and at this time I was, I was still a medical student. I didn't even have my medical degree yet, but I, I had a nutrition background. Right. So, um, I, I kind of, you know, got through the pregnancy. I had an eight pound, two ounce baby, nice and healthy, you know, full term. And, um, we were very blessed. And then 23 months later, I was graduated medical school. I was a doctor. I was in my OBGYN residency and we had our second pregnancy. Well, basically we had three pregnancies in 60 months. So I have three daughters and they're all 23 months apart. And I failed my glucose testing with every pregnancy. And I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism after my first pregnancy. And, but I was very busy. I mean, as a medical resident, you're working, you know, 80 hours a week. I had a husband that was, God bless him, supporting our family and working, you know, nights. He was a police officer, you know, working so many nights and weekends. And we were just really in survival mode. So after, um, actually during my third pregnancy, right after my third daughter was born, I had an extremely tragic event happen in my life. I lost one of my best friends in her pregnancy. We had planned our pregnancies together and we lost her and her baby during the pregnancy. And, um, it was one of those, you know, moments in your life where it's just like a huge slap in the face and standing there as, you know, as a doctor and as a mom, um, it just kind of gave me this realization of like, I just never know when my day is coming, you know? And so my husband and I decided that we really needed to get our health in a better place and be a better example for our girls. And I was in my last year of residency. And so I knew that, you know, I was going to have a little bit more freedom in my schedule. And so we tried a lot of different diets. We tried whole 30 and then we tried paleo and I did okay with paleo. I actually, you know, lost some weight and was maintaining okay, but I really liked cheese. Um, despite, <laughs> despite knowing my body now that I don't do all that great with dairy, I just could not stick to paleo. And so finally, um, a little over three years ago, we settled on the ketogenic diet and I am off my thyroid medicine. Um, oh, I guess I didn't tell you, uh, just prior to starting this whole whole 30 paleo business, I found out I had prediabetes. So after failing all that glucose testing, it finally caught up with me. And that was, you know, another big eye-opening thing. You know, when you say like your why I'm standing, I'm a doctor, I'm an OBGYN. I failed all my glucose testing. I did everything I tell my patients not to do. And I just thought I I better start walking the walk and talking the talk. Like this is insane. You have a nutrition degree, (laughs) exercise science degree and a medical degree. You know, if I can't show people how it's done, then, you know, who am I to sit there and lecture people? So But anyway, we settled on the ketogenic diet and um, my A1C is the best it's ever been. I'm off my thyroid medicine. I feel amazing. Um, About 18 months ago, I got back into the gym. I started lifting weights heavy again. Um, Back in November, we kind of switched to what what I would call like a carnivore-based keto diet. I'm not 100% carnivore all the time but predominantly carnivore, both my husband and I, and we're like at the best body compositions. We feel amazing. My husband no longer has migraines. That was kind of his chronic health issue that he was dealing with as a police officer. We really thought it was due to the sleep deprivation of working second and third shift for almost 11 years, but he um, no longer takes ibuprofen. I mean, he used to eat ibuprofen like Skittles trying to get his headaches to go away. And he no longer takes any meds for that. I'm not on any medications. And, you know, I've really started to incorporate this into my practice and in doing so have accumulated a large, you know, following and a large patient base of low carb and uh, low carb pregnant people. And so now I'm really trying to kind of bridge the gaps for people of, you know, being a mom and being a human, just like all my patients are, but also being a doctor and kind of really digging down and 
seen what the literature really shows us and, you know, how we've really actually had it wrong in medicine for a really long time. I think one of the most interesting things in this is that your story is so similar to just anyone else's. I mean, ours, we started Whole30, we did paleo and, um, you know, we were looking for something to correct some health issues. But the biggest thing I'm seeing here is that you had a nutrition degree, you were a medical doctor and you were doing all these things, but you found keto, which is so surprising because in your career fields, that is definitely not the route that most any nutritionist or medical professional is going to go first. So how did you stumble on to Whole30 and then paleo and then the ketogenic diet? Yeah. So you're completely right. When I first started this, this, uh, on a very personal level, um, I kind of felt like the black sheep in the medical (laughs) community. People were like, Oh, you're doing keto. Like, and it always came with that, like (laughs) that sound in their voice. And, you know, I had known I, my mom is like a chronic dieter. I watched my mom struggle with her weight her whole life, but I knew in the periods of her life where she had lost significant amounts of weight, it was always doing low carb. And I knew I was a pre-diabetic. So it really made sense that carb restriction would help get my A1C, you know, to more of a normal level. But in my nutrition degree and in medical school, they never talked about therapeutic ketosis. They never talked about you know, what benefits ketones really play in our bloodstream. It was always talking about ketones on a, on a pathology basis, you know, diabetic ketoacidosis, ketones are bad. Um, it's, you know, they only come during starvation. They only come when, when it's an emergency and we never were taught that it was a very normal physiologic process to have ketones in your bloodstream. So a lot of it was um, kind of stepping out on a limb a little bit, but I started to experience, uh, you know, experiment with like exogenous ketones and the ketogenic diet and just trying to figure out, you know, how to be my own expert essentially. And I had, you know, read a little bit of literature like from Jason Fung and, and just how, you know, like we shouldn't be giving insulin to diabetics. And I really started to just rethink things. And once I figured it out for myself, then I knew I could really take it to the masses and, you know, bring it to my patients. And so really it was just kind of stepping out there and and putting my neck out there really in all honesty, because when I started my journey, I actually made it very public. And so it wasn't like people didn't know what I was doing. And I've had, you know, I've had physicians in my own community, you know, attack me for it publicly. Um, But I think that results are really hard to argue with. So I just kind of said, listen, I'm going to put it out there. I'm going to put my labs out there. I'm going to show people exactly what I'm doing. And now that my patients have started to see so much success and physicians in my own community have seen that, um, now it's, it's really hard to deny. And now it's actually very cool. It's a very cool time to be in medicine because I really do, for everyone listening, I really do honestly believe that my peers are opening their ears and they're opening their eyes and they're starting to see this, you know, our patients educate us too. And as doctors, we really need to keep an open mind. There's always new information coming out. Um, the way we did things 10, 15, 20 years ago is never how we do it 20 years later. Nothing in medicine ever stays the same. So as a physician, if you're not growing, you know, with, with the literature and with your patients, uh, you know, it's, you're going to fall behind and you're going to get outdated really quickly. So it's really cool now because a lot of colleagues in town will reach out to me and, um, you know, want to discuss patients and I am a large referral base in my, in my community for ketogenic patients. And so with that in your practice, 
Do you still get pushback from anyone in your field when you do put a patient on a ketogenic diet? Um, no, I've definitely had patients that have come to me that said, you know, my former doctor or my endocrinologist or my neurologist or my so-and-so is not supportive. Um, but you know, my patients are my patients and it's my relationship with them. And, and I discuss with them what literature we know, and we talk about what their health goals are and we decide what's going to be, you know, the best for them. The other thing that I tell people is when you're talking to your physician about it, um, you know, you didn't ask them permission to eat pizza and donuts all day. So I'm not really sure why people <laughs> feel like they need permission from their doctor to eat a steak and broccoli. Right. I don't understand right. it. And, and I think just the word, you know, keto and ketogenic, um, you know, for some people just has such a bad connotation that I say, listen, tell your physician what you're eating. I'm having steak and Brussels sprouts and chicken and small amounts of dairy and, you know, nuts and seeds. And does that sound like a bad diet? No, it's like a real whole food diet. So, you know, I think for people just talk about what you eat, you know, don't like put a label on it. That's a good advice. Yeah. And we joke, just like you said all the time, if, if I bring donuts to the, the luncheon, then everybody's like, Oh, donuts, you're awesome. But if I was to just bring a bunch of steak and go, Hey, let's all just eat steak. People would be like, that's crazy. You're going to die. You're going to die. <laughs> Absolutely. My, it's funny because we still have drug reps that sometimes come into our office and my office staff knows me so well. And um, about six, nine months ago, somebody brought in um, a meat and cheese platter and dropped it off for Dr. Seaman. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> they know <laughs> they're doing their research. <laughs> they're figuring it out. And that's awesome because that's a reach of influence that you have that, you know, that's not very common for drug reps to, um, to do that. Usually it's, they bring in the sandwiches and the pastries and things like that to doctor's offices. And you're like, these are all the foods that are causing the problem. A hundred percent. We had an obesity, uh, an obesity pharma rep come in with a, it's an injectable drug, um, for obesity. And literally like the lunch was like pizza and pasta. <laughs> wow. So. And you see the disconnect there, you know, between what is actually causing the problems and, and, and these, and the drug reps and then the medical community. A lot of times I've seen different, um, conferences on diabetes or things. And the food is just atrocious at these conferences. It's candy bars and, you know, soft drinks and, and chips. And you're like, what are we doing? What's going on here? Where's the disconnect? And I love what you said about you read Jason Fung's uh, work and we shouldn't be giving insulin to diabetics. And I think that's such a good point to bring up because if you just pull back at the, you know, just peel back everything and look at something from a common sense perspective, which I think gets lost a lot of times, then why would you give, there's, there's enough insulin there. It's just not working. So what's the common sense there is, Oh, let's give more of the thing that's not working. It's just, it's just seems crazy. So that's really awesome that, that you saw through that and kind of went on this journey yourself. So. Yeah. And so I'm interested to hear, I mean, you're doing this now and you know, you feel great and, and you're, you're learning a lot. How are you? And, and I want to say training because uh, you know, how you're training your kids. I, I know people will use teach, but you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer of you train your children to be good adults and whether that's uh, you know, their character, their, their mental resilience, their physical ability. 
how are you uh, how are you training or teaching your kids to have that relationship with food that you brought up earlier? Yeah, a hundred percent. Because, like I touched on, I grew up with a really disordered pattern of eating, and it really caught up to me. You know, being a female, you know, I had body dysmorphic issues and a really poor relationship with food. And so, for me, having three daughters. Um, it's a really big deal to me. And when we first started this journey, our children were eating what I would call like a normal standard American diet for children. Um, they were eating mac and cheese and corn dogs and, you know, they would sometimes eat what we cooked, but a lot of times we were really catering to what we thought they would eat. And as a mom, I get it. You're stressed. It's the end of the day. And all you want is your children to eat dinner and not complain. And it was, um, it was kind of a place where my husband and I said, okay, let's get our diet right so that we can be the example for them. So we really fixed our diet. And then this last January, um, we went after them (laughs) and (laughs) my kids kids are not necessarily ketogenic. Um, they're definitely like more gluten-free, dairy-free, low carb. Um, but children can definitely tolerate more carbs than we can as adults, but their carb sources are, are mostly, you know, fruits and vegetables, maybe some low carb tortillas. Um, but they at dinner time now eat what we eat. So if we cook steak, they have ribeye and mushrooms, and then they might have, you know, a couple berries on the side or, um, they're just, they, they eat a lot more animal products now than they used to, which is really cool because, I never in my wildest dreams thought my daughter, my oldest daughter now will be asking for steak and mushrooms for dinner. And my littlest fell asleep during dinner one night and she missed dinner and she woke up off the couch and she just asked for a bowl of beef. And (laughs) 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 what four-year-old is asking for a bowl of ground beef? But I think the message I'm trying to tell people is it's very interesting what they will eat when you just offer it to them. And when you just put it on their plate and put it in front of them, And we don't tell them what to eat. They still make a lot of decisions for themselves. But I think it's important to talk about what we put in our bodies and what it does inside of our bodies. So we've really tried to just talk about how the food makes us feel and how the food gives us energy and what does protein do in our bodies and what does fat do. And my eight-year-old does look at nutrition labels now and she'll ask like, how much sugar is in this? And you know, we don't talk about like good foods and bad foods. We just talk about foods that provide nutrition and energy and and how they make us feel. And I think that empowering your children to make those decisions, I'm not naive at 18, they're going to leave my house. And I pray that they don't try to live off of beer and ramen and pizza and tacos. I mean, I just, um, one day they'll leave my home, but if, you know, if I can really just empower them with the decisions to, you know, fuel their body in the right way. Um, I think, you know, that's the best approach to take with them. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that a lot of times, like you said, we decide what we think our kids will eat. And so we provide the macaroni and cheese. I did the same thing. I had three children very close together. My two boys were 14 months apart. And then I had my daughter two years later. So they were all very close. And I did the same thing. You know, I thought, well, I'm making this for me for dinner. So they'll probably want macaroni and cheese. And you do that. And you don't realize that, you know, a lot of times they're going to eat the same thing, like you said, that you will. It's what you provide. And we talk to parents about that a lot. You're the one going to the grocery store. You're the one picking up the food. So, you know, if it's not in the house, they can't eat it. It it just becomes a, it's a little bit of a power struggle when you're changing 
an older child's diet at first. And I, and I definitely feel for parents because we've been through that. So that's awesome. And I heard you say a lot of keywords that I loved, which are nutrients and what the food does for you versus this many calories or that many calories. Because I think as a girl, uh, raising girls, we get into that. I mean, I, I know I calorie restricted just like you did. You know, that was my go-to was calorie restriction. So raising girls that look at, or children just in general, that look at food as a nutrient rather than, oh, I have to restrict calories to be a certain weight and versus I'm going to eat this food because it has this nutrient and it's going to make me feel awesome. I think yeah. And, and I think, yeah, I mean, you're hitting on this body image issue and being a, being a college softball player, I was lifting really hard. I had, I had giant quad muscles. It's actually been like, it's probably, it's like the one area of my body where I've always been like a little bit, you know, self-conscious. I had a f- football player friend in college that used to call me quadzilla. <laughs> and, um, and now I'm at a point in my life where, you know, I'm, I'm super proud of my body and, you know, I'm proud of my muscles and I don't care. I love girls with muscles. And so we use the word strong a lot in our household, you know, like, okay, you need to eat your protein. It's going to make you strong. You know, it's going to make you feel strong and lift, you know, lift big things. And we just talk about the, what we put in our body and then what we get out of it. Right. Which is like strength and energy. And, and, um, I, I just never want them to feel the way that I felt about my body. Now you, you hit on the, uh, the, you know, you played, you know, softball in college, um, you know, and I know you talked talk about how your diet was probably, probably then high carbs and, you know, you kind of eat whatever you wanted to eat and just perform because you were an athlete. Now that you, you've kind of, you talked about getting back into the gym, how do you feel on, you know, on eating keto or carnivore and how does that affect your physical performance? Yeah. So when I was first started doing ketogenic diet, I wasn't working out super hard. I was doing more like uh, pure bar. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but kind of like a Pilates yoga type workout. And it was because I was postpartum and, you know, I had lost a lot of muscle being in medical school and residency. And so I did that. And then about 18 months ago, I, I went back in the gym working more at the level that I would have when I was collegiate, like doing HIIT training and like really heavy resistance training. And I was already what I would consider like fat adapted or keto adapted when I, when I went into that. So when I, when I joined the gym that I'm at currently, the trainers looked me in the face and said, you'll never get through the 60 minute hit workout, not eating carbs. Like they said, you must eat an apple or banana before you come. Well, and they also told me that I would never gain muscle, um, being low carb. They basically laughed. I mean, I told them the way I ate, I was like totally upfront and honest and what they didn't know about me is I'm very competitive. (laughs) And so from that moment on, it was like my mission to prove them wrong. And so, um, fast forward one year, I had been at the gym 365 days and I posted this picture. It's on my social media. If anybody wants to go look at it, but I lost basically 27 pounds of fat and gained eight and a half pounds of muscle in 365 days. And nobody ever, ever, ever believed that you could gain muscle eating this way. And, um, I, for like a very, like one month of that, I did some carb cycling, but really other than that, I really never added carbs back in, but my workouts are fine. I do hour long hit sessions. I do, um, you know, heavy resistance training. I feel like my output in the gym is, is still phenomenal. Um, I, I do use basically salt and exogenous ketones as a pre-workout. But other than that, I work out fasted um, every single day, usually at 5 a.m., six days a week, three days of HIIT, and three days of, of weight training. 
Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome because, you know, a lot of people will say that, that you can't put on muscle with this diet, which is, is really funny because it's more protein, which we know we need protein to put on muscle. So I always think that that's so odd that they will say, well, you can't put on muscle without eating carbs. Yeah, I always ask them to explain to me how carbs build muscle. Go ahead and tell me in the body how carbs break down and turn into muscle. And then you're like, oh, wait, it's it's muscle protein synthesis. It's protein not carbs. So that's when the conversation starts to get and they're like, Oh, Hey, yeah, you just don't understand, man. You just, you just don't know. I- yeah. I mean, insulin, I mean, insulin is great, right? So you increase insulin like growth factor and, and it, it does stimulate muscle protein synthesis, but there's also a lot of other things that do. Right. <laughs> and the cool thing about ketogenic diet is that ketones in the bloodstream are, are muscle sparing. And so what's really cool is what I've seen with a lot of people and a lot of my patients is the ability to lose large amounts of body fat while maintaining their lean body mass, which is key, which is key because, um, you know, the last thing you want your patient to do is to lose a hundred pounds and 20 of it was lean body mass because that's just going to drag on their metabolism and their thyroid and all these things so much more. And so I think it's really important that, that we have a tool that you can lose body fat and at least maintain lean body mass, especially for like older individuals who maybe can't work out, you know, at the level that you and I do, um, but, but can still maintain what they've already built. Yeah. And, you know, you, you talked about, um, a little bit about thyroid earlier, and I know I want to make sure that we get into that in just a little bit about thyroid health. And you talked about carb cycling for a little bit. So did, let's talk about that first. So with going into a ketogenic diet and then kind of playing with the carb cycling, do you see a difference in yourself, both physically, mentally, and maybe even blood work wise versus carb cycling and not carb cycling? Yeah. So when I first started, I was basically eating what I would call standard ketogenic diet. So really watching my protein and trying not to get too much protein because I you know, wanted to stay in ketosis, right? It was like, I wasn't really testing my ketones, but I mean, in a sense, I was trying to chase the ketones, but I always knew if I was doing well based on how I felt. Um, I knew when I was in, you know, a therapeutic level that I, my brain just felt like really good. And then as I progressed, I started to add more protein in. And when I went back to the gym is when I decided, okay, I'm working out really hard. I need some more protein. I'm not going to, you know, sacrifice that. Um, and then I started hearing about carnivore and I thought these people are crazy. Like there's no freaking way that you can just live on like steak and eggs and chicken. And I started to think about it and I'm like, okay, this is like the ketogenic diet for dummies because you really can't screw it up. Right. So then I've always just said, be your own expert, be your own expert, be your own expert, because the way that the ketogenic diet works for me might look differently for you, might look differently for some of my patients. It's all based on, you know, what your current body composition is, what, you know, health problems existing you might have and what your goals are. And so my husband and I last November decided to try 30 days of strict carnivore. And I did that. And I was like at the best body composition I'd ever been at the end of November And I thought, huh, interesting, you know, I'm eating a lot more protein than I used to. And so then I really started to kind of like zero in on my like fat and protein ratios. And then I got through the holidays and then then in January is when I thought, okay, I'm going to do some carb cycling. And actually what I kind of did was a little bit more of like a protein sparing modified fast. So I actually kept kind of like lower carbs, lower fat during the week. 
And then I would do this big carb up on Saturdays and then eat just like standard ketogenic on Sunday. And so I, I just, it was just total self-experimentation. I did pre and post labs and pre and post pictures. And what I found was on my carb up days, I felt awful. I mean, physically like ill, awful. And I think the longer you've been kind of ketogenic, your pancreas doesn't really understand how to bolus insulin anymore. And so I know that I was having some like major blood sugar issues, both up and down. And we know that your microbiome changes pretty rapidly. You know, when you've been on ketogenic or carnivore, not necessarily for the worst, it just changes, right? It just adapts to how, how your nutrition is. And so um, I, I just didn't feel all that great doing the carb cycling. And then I noticed um, when I did my post labs that my fasting insulin had gone up a little bit and my A1C had bumped a couple points. And so that just made me really nervous because I know that I come from an insulin resistant background. I was pre-diabetic. So I think for somebody who truly has a history of insulin resistance or diabetes or whatever, doing like aggressive carb cycling like that is like probably not the greatest idea. Maybe occasionally adding like small amounts of like berries or tubers or something like that would be a, a better idea, you know, maybe every 14 or 28 days. But definitely not on a regular basis. And then that's where I kind of, after that whole carb cycling experimentation is kind of where I went back to carnivore and then said, okay, let's be like predominantly carnivore, but then just like occasional, you know, vegetables or, or maybe occasional targeted carbs. I started to do a little bit more like targeted ketogenic or targeted carnivore, which means like consuming carbs just around your workout time. But I'll be real honest, um, the targeted carb experimentation, like I didn't feel stronger in the gym. I felt great in the gym before. So um, I've now taken away the carbs that I was was trying during that experimentation. So I'm more just carnivore-based, like mostly animal foods, um, steak, eggs, um, you know, maybe uh, fish, salmon, and then occasional vegetables, like an occasional salad, and like maybe an occasional carb, but it's, it's really a, a conscious decision. Do you um, practice any sort of intermittent fasting within that? Yeah, I think intermittent fasting is a really great tool. And I think it fits really nicely with the ketogenic lifestyle because for most people, um, the ketogenic diet is very good at suppressing your appetite. So it's very easy to do intermittent fasting when when you're in ketosis. Um, I think there's definitely benefits to intermittent fasting just by itself. Even if somebody wasn't eating a low carb lifestyle, you know, there was just a study published this last year showing a 50% reduction in insulin levels. And these people were eating a normal, you know, quote unquote, standard American diet. So intermittent fasting is a amazing tool for, um, you know, people who are insulin resistant and it fits great. I do basically only eat one or two meals a day. So most days I eat two meals, um, I would say sometimes I eat one meal and very rarely would I ever eat three meals in a day. So my eating window is, is usually six hours or less. Yeah. And so with that, now let's, now let's hit on the thyroid issue because you were talking about being on thyroid medication and you had thyroid issues. So everything you're doing is totally contradictory to what someone would say you need to do for good thyroid health. You're not eating carbs or eating them very seldomly, and then you're intermittent fasting. Those are all the things 
we have a train right there <laughs> by our house. So yeah. we always mention it because people have been driving and they all of a sudden are like listening to the podcast and they'll send us a message. I thought there was a train on the freeway. <laughs> no, it's right next to our house. But um, so if you hear that. So the thyroid, a lot of people, and, and I know I've, I've had friends that have asked me who have Hashimoto's and they're like, but I thought I had to eat carbs. You know, I thought I had to eat so many meals a day. So have you seen, obviously you're having great success with this, but what about like your patient population? Have you seen success with other people as far as thyroid health with eating primarily a ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet? Yeah. Yeah. So insulin resistance is not good for the thyroid. So we see tons of hypothyroidism and we see lots of hypothyroidism in the OBGYN world because we screen for it a lot in patients who have infertility or, I mean, what woman doesn't come in and say they're fatigued, right? It usually <laughs> always triggers testing the thyroid, but most physicians aren't testing the whole thyroid. They're testing for TSH and free T4, which is thyroid stimulating hormone. And then basically, you know, free T4, which is one of our thyroid hormones and uh, the one that mostly the thyroid gland puts out, but then peripherally in the body, it gets converted to free T3. So T3 is our active thyroid hormone. And a lot of doctors don't even check that. Um, when, when I was diagnosed, it was literally based on a high TSH value and a low free T4 value. So um, the issue with thyroid is that when you diet or calorie restrict or do any sort of different lifestyle than you're doing now, um, it's not uncommon to see a reduction in thyroid function. So when people are attempting to lose weight, I don't care if you're on the cabbage juice diet or the ketogenic diet or Weight Watchers or whatever it is, but when you are attempting to lose weight, we see a reduction in thyroid hormone. Um, it's a natural adaptive process of the body. And typically with time, once you get to kind of like goal or maintenance weight, a lot of times the thyroid function will even out. And so I don't do knee-jerk reactions off like one thyroid lab. Um, it's something that you need to check like every six to eight weeks until you're really at a maintenance phase. So it's, it's, a, it's something you need to follow. You don't just check it one time and say, oh, you've got hypothyroidism. Go back to doing what you were doing before. So it's something that you need to, to follow. The other thing that's, that's very interesting in the ketogenic world is is there have been studies that have looked at thyroid function and people doing the ketogenic diet. Dr. Volek has done a lot of studies and they've looked at these patients. I mean, some of these studies were 12 months. Okay. These weren't like six week studies. They were, they were long studies. And what we've seen is there does seem to be in some patients, not all patients, but a reduction in the T3 level, this active thyroid hormone. And so this is where people say, Oh, don't do ketogenic diet. It decreases your thyroid function. But the interesting thing is in the body, it's a, it's a, it's a feedback loop. So if your T3 goes down, then your brain should say, oh, the T3 went down, let's make more thyroid hormone. And it should increase your TSH, your thyroid stimulating hormone. But we don't see that. We see a reduction in T3, but the TSH doesn't rise. So the theory really is that this is basically kind of the same idea as insulin resistance. Is that is do we have thyroid resistance? And this is actually now the T3 is actually more sensitive. We have, we have a better sensitivity to T3 hormone because I have tested a lot of low-carb ketogenic people and occasionally their T3 will be on the lower end of normal or even just below the low end of normal, but they have a normal TSH and they don't have symptoms. And that's the key is if the patient doesn't have symptoms, are they truly hypothyroid? Because when I had hypothyroidism, I could basically tell you what my TSH is when I walked in to get my blood drawn. 
When it was above five, I felt horrible. When it was close to one, I felt really good. So if a patient doesn't have symptoms, I mean, first of all, why are you checking it, right? I mean, because most of the time in low-carb ketogenic people were like totally just checking it out of curiosity. But um, I think it's interesting um, to, I think time will tell because um, more people now are following it and testing and we just don't have a lot of studies on, on ketogenic people. But Dr. Volick has published lots of studies and none of those patients, 0% of the patients and it, if you add up all the studies, I mean, it was like over a thousand patients, none of them developed hypothyroidism being on the ketogenic diet. So we definitely will see laboratory changes, but, um, to say that it causes hypothyroidism, I think is a, is an untrue statement. Yeah. So uh, talking about, uh, you know, testing, uh, all your markers, what do you look at when, you know, because as we know, you know, when you go from the standard American diet to the ketogenic diet, all your blood markers are going to change. And a lot of time that causes some stress for people because sometimes, you know, your, your LDL will be different. Your cholesterol will go up. How do you coach uh, people through looking at the, those blood markers and, and what uh, blood markers do you think are the, the most effective to look at? Yeah. So typically when patients come in and they're getting started, we will check a CBC, which is a complete blood count, looking at their hemoglobin levels, their platelet levels, also looks at all your white blood cells. And then we look at something called a CMP or a comprehensive metabolic profile. And this is looking at like your liver and your kidney function. Um, and I think it's important to just have baseline, you know, for those things so that down the road, if there's an abnormal value, you have something for reference. And then um, knowing a patient's kidney function is also important when you're starting them on a ketogenic diet as well. Um, and then the other things that we look at, you asked about lipids, very, very common question that I get in my clinic. So a standard lipid panel only shows you your total cholesterol, your HDL, your good cholesterol, your LDL, and your, and your VLDL. Um, what we know from the literature is that basically across the board is that your HDL cholesterol will typically go up. Your triglycerides will typically go down because you're a fat burner now. And then your LDL cholesterol, it seems like about a third of the population, it goes down, a third, it stays the same, and a third, it goes up. So in these situations, you really should be doing more of an advanced lipid panel, something called an NMR um, lipid panel. So you'll have to ask your doctor. Sometimes it's called like a Boston Heart panel. There's a couple different names for it, depending on which lab you're using. But you need this more advanced lipid panel to actually look at the particle size. So what really matters is are the LDL particles getting bigger and fluffier or are they small, hard, tight particles? And then once we know that information, then we look at inflammation markers because we know that even in the face of like small, hard, hard tight LDL particles, you know, it's really this inflammation that you know, drives atherosclerosis. And so we look at inflammatory markers, um, HSCRP or high-sensitivity CRP, um, ferritin and, um, LP little a all seem to be good markers of inflammation. Um, now these things are also something called an acute phase reactant. So meaning if you Melody came in and had your blood drawn and your CRP was high, it could be possible that you just did a hard workout in the gym or that you had a recent respiratory virus. So once again, these are things that you need to look at on a continuum. You need to get your labs checked every couple months. I encourage people if you don't get your labs checked, you don't know what's going on inside your body. And so don't just make assumptions. And so these are kind of like the basic things that I look at. I always do baseline thyroid testing as well, looking at the TSH, T4, T3, free T4, free T3, and reverse T3. And, um, and then I always screen for thyroid antibodies to see if a patient might have you know underlying Hashimoto's or some sort of autoimmune thyroid dysfunction going on. 
But those are kind of like the basics. There's certainly, you know, we could spend a lot of money drawing a lot of labs <laughs> on people and I'm kind of a geek, right? So I love, you know, I order a lot of things on myself, but my patients, we have to be, you know, very cost conscious, but those are kind of like baseline labs that I think people should know. And then the biggest one, the biggest one that I think everybody should know is what their fasting glucose and their fasting insulin are. So like an insulin or C-peptide level to see how much insulin is your body making to make your glucose normal? Because so many people just screen with like a hemoglobin A1C, which would be like a three month average of your blood sugars, or even just with a fasting glucose. I found patients that have you know, a decent fasting glucose, but they have a sky high fasting insulin level. And that means that is called diabetes in situ or what I like to call pre-pre-diabetes. <laughs> and um, I probably had that for a number of years. Um, and if you can catch patients at that moment in time, um, I think that's when you have, you know, the biggest impact in, in their long-term health outcomes. Do you draw a fasting insulin on your uh, pregnant patient population? Yeah. Interesting. So I, I, I don't always check that on pregnant patients. Um, I, I do screen pregnant patients who are high risk for insulin resistance, but not like across the board. So, you know, people that are overweight before they become pregnant, you know, any history of gestational diabetes or insulin resistance, even just the family history. A lot of times I will, I will check a fasting glucose, fasting insulin and fasting A1C. The thing you have to know though in pregnancy is that there are physiologic adaptations of pregnancy that will change those values. So I like my patient's fasting insulin to be less than five, but for a patient that's already pregnant, we just don't know what that normal value is because in pregnancy, as soon as you get pregnant, your pancreas actually starts putting out larger amounts of insulin and you actually have an increase in insulin sensitivity in the first trimester. It isn't until the second and third trimester when physiologic insulin resistance really happens. And that's why the diabetes test in pregnancy is at 28 weeks. It's not until the start of the third trimester. So I don't check it in all patients across the board at the start of pregnancy because we don't really know what it means. And, and sometimes it's hard to find or guess who the people are that are going to develop gestational diabetes. But what we do know from a couple large trials, one called the HAPO trial, which was the hyperglycemia adverse outcome trial, they looked at patients who failed the glucose testing, right? That developed gestational diabetes. And then they looked at the women that passed the test and they looked at the same parameters for both groups, like how many of their babies were born too large, how many of their babies had high insulin levels in the umbilical cord, how many of their babies had NICU admissions. And what we found is that the women that passed the glucose testing, those women that had higher glucose and insulin levels had larger babies, more NICU admissions. And in the follow-up HAPO trial, their babies went on to have higher rates of obesity and type 2 diabetes. So it's kind of scary because even the cutoffs that we're using for gestational diabetes, there's a large population of women running around out there that think they don't have gestational diabetes and they're eating excessive amounts of carbohydrates, and it's causing hyperinsulinemia, and it's causing long-term health implications for their children. I was one of the ones that failed the glucose tolerance test <laughs> with my first, my first pregnancy, so I completely understand that, and I think it would have been interesting if um, at the time someone had known to draw a fasting insulin to see where I was beforehand and to know, you know, I, I was 22. I didn't know anything. <laughs> so, you know, I failed that test. And then, of course, they handed me, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, uh, the guide for gestational diabetes at the time was I needed to drink some skim milk and eat whole grains. 
and lots of fruit and lots of vegetables and just needed to keep everything low fat. And, you know, I did that. I didn't get any better. So it just, it's good to know that there are doctors out there now that, especially that I'm a grandmother and I have daughters and and daughter-in-laws having babies, you know, that there's someone out there that knows these things, that's putting this message out there because maybe, you know, and then of course me, I'm, I'm always talking to them about it, of course, (laughs) but you know, it just would have saved me so many health issues down the road. Um, because at the time I, there just really wasn't a lot of education on that, you know, and then in the hospital, they, instead of encouraging me to breastfeed, they handed me a box of, uh, a flat of Infamil in the bottles with the nipples and said, here, this is a lot easier. You should just do this. Yeah. That's so sad. I mean, it's so sad to think what we did five, 10, 15 years ago. I mean, not that long ago, really in all honesty. Well, it's 93. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. A couple years a ago. While ago. <laughs> but I mean, we are definitely doing a better job at supporting women with breastfeeding, but, but with, with nutrition and pregnancy, we're really not, you know, um, you probably were insulin sensitive prior to becoming pregnant. But like I said, pregnancy is the greatest physiologic test. And if you're going to develop insulin resistance, a lot of times, you know, it's good, high blood pressure, all these things are going to pop up in your pregnancy. If you have some sort of either genetic predisposition or environmental, you know, predisposition, um, we're going to find it. And what's, what's scary too, is that the guidelines from the American college of OBGYN say when a patient can't control her blood sugars with the, nutritional diet that we give them for gestational diabetes, we're supposed to start insulin. That's first line therapy now. And we know that women who have hyperinsulinemia in pregnancy have higher rates of preeclampsia, um, higher rates of hemorrhage, NICU admissions. I mean, you name it, all the morbidity associated with pregnancy and delivery goes up as the insulin goes up. So it's, um, it's something that really needs to be addressed. Yeah, that's absolutely crazy. You know, and, um, just knowing that, you know, trying to teach women, and I know you're doing this, that nutrient dense food will make healthy babies. And, you know, like you talked about earlier, teaching your, your daughters, what, what is nutrient dense food and what is not and keeping it in those categories instead, like you said, not good food, bad food, but what is nutrient food, dense food and what is not, what is real food and what is not food. A hundred percent. And when you look at a woman's diet and pregnancy, when you look at the recommendations for what women should eat, it is mathematically impossible to get the number of nutrients that you need, like specifically things like choline, um, eating 50 to 60% carbohydrates, mathematically impossible. So um, when when we're talking about women eating nutrient-dense food in the most bioavailable form, that means meat, chicken, beef, steak, liver, eggs, salmon, you know, fish. And, you know, I'm not saying you know, fruits and vegetables and, and maybe small amounts of grains are fine. I think ancestrally, you know, people ate anywhere from maybe 10 to 20% of their diet from carbs, but not 50 to 60%. Yeah, it's a big difference. And I know um, we've, we've looked at a lot of Weston A. Price's work in the past um, and what people fed pregnant women ancestrally. Um, lots of, you know, women got the liver, they got the egg yolks, they got the fatty cuts of meat when they were of childbearing age. And I think it's so interesting that that work is just not public knowledge. That should be part of the education of every human that this is what an appropriate human diet is. And, you know, now not to bash, not to get on a soapbox, but now we have this huge vegan push 
And we're seeing, you know, so much of that coming out. Like we watched, you know, football yesterday and every commercial is either a drug. It was a drug commercial, a pharmaceutical commercial or a Beyond Meat commercial. And I'm like, ah, you know, things are, things are being pushed so hard on young people to go plant-based and that's going to push the carbohydrate load even higher. And I've done a vegan diet in the past and I know how terrible I felt on that. And so, you know, we see that big push now. And I just think for the future, are you familiar with Francis Pottinger and the Pottinger's cat theory, the study that he did on cats where uh, very vaguely vaguely so basically you would never be able to do this now but anyway someone can go look it up but he took cats and this was you know a long time ago before this would not be okay to do now and um fed them different diets one was a, you know raw diet appropriate for a cat and then all the way up to condensed milk for you know a certain section of the cats and just let them procreate and see what the differences were and it was amazing because every generation of the cats who were not fed an appropriate diet became more and more unhealthy and less structurally sound, even in their bones and, you know, to where they were born blind, they couldn't function, they couldn't procreate. And we're in that situation in our country, really, and across the world where we are Pottinger's cats right now, and we have to make that shift. And so, Thankfully, we have doctors like you because a lot of times someone doesn't want to listen to someone who doesn't have the white coat. Well, let's just be honest. You're going to have a lot more sway than Steve or I will because you have that credential and you can say these things with authority and hopefully people will take, you know, take heed and listen to that. And we won't be a bunch of like blind Pottinger's cats running around procreate, trying to procreate. Yeah. And I think that I want people to hear this message that I think that most doctors are really good people. And most doctors really honestly, truly came into medicine to help people. But when you have published papers and organizations that give health recommendations, like for instance, our US government oversees the agriculture of grains and soy and sugar. And they're also the people who give nutritional dietary recommendations, uh, there's a little bit of a conflict of interest there. And they're the same people that, you know, make health recommendations. I mean, we know that American Heart Association, American Cardiology Association, when low fat recommendations came out, the seven country studies was basically paid for by the sugar industry. So it's, it's a scary time. I, I don't want people to say, you know, don't trust your doctors, but I think we're all learning together. Um, we're in a, a bad place with healthcare in America and it's just going to be one person at a time. And I want people to hear this message. It starts with you. Nobody should care more about your health than you. Don't expect your doctor to fix it. Don't expect your spouse to fix it. It's time to take a little bit of self accountability in this country for your own health. Wow. Well, that, that's, that's super great advice. And it's funny because we're, we're about to go, what's the one thing you want everybody to hear? <laughs> <laughs> and so great. Awesome. <laughs> that's so true. So we don't want to take up any more of your day. We really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story with us and talking a little bit about women's health and just 
people in general and what we can look for on labs. All this information has been super helpful, I know, to our listeners. And if if someone out there is not already following you, they need to go jump on Instagram because you are constantly putting out such great information for people. And is there anywhere else that someone would go to find you or are you primarily on Instagram? Yeah. So um, if you're local to Omaha, I work at Mid-City OBGYN. I'm a private practice OBGYN and all, people are always asking if I'm accepting new patients. Yes, I have not closed my practice yet. Um, so you can find me at Mid-City OBGYN, but yes, please. My Instagram and Facebook is Dr. Fit and Fabulous and then drfitandfabulous.com. I do online um, consulting. I'm definitely scaling it back because I'm working on a book, um, probably going to be called like Fit and Fabulous Pregnancy. Um, so that's going to take some time. I do have my own podcast that's starting soon as well. And then I am speaking at a few different places in the next year. If you're in the area, um, I will be speaking at, um, Keto Summit Omaha right here in my own town in January. We have some amazing speakers coming in for that. And then Metabolic Health Summit, which is in Long Beach, California, end of January, 1st of February. And, um, and then I'll be at KetoCon next year too. So I uh, hope to meet anybody. Please don't be a stranger and uh, come say hi. I really, I really do love and appreciate all my followers so much. Yeah. And on the note of KetoCon, you can go and you can still get your tickets half price up until the end of this month. So if any of you guys want to head to Austin next year, and hear Dr. Jamie speak there, then um, you need to get on that website and get your tickets now while they're half price. We we need to also do this. We need to also do that. (laughs) Because I (laughs) can't. So we will definitely see you then in Austin in 2020. I believe it's in June uh, 2020. So we are looking forward to that. And so everybody go and follow Dr. Fit and Fabulous on Instagram. And thank you once again, Jamie, for being here with us today. Thank you guys so much. All right. Everybody go out there, have a great day, eat fat and prosper. Thanks for listening to the Tasco Kitchen. Hit subscribe and leave us a review. Don't forget to send your questions to vtkquestions at gmail.com and visit our website, thetacticalkitchen.com. <laughs>